Section 2 of Stories Without Tears. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stories Without Tears by Barry Payne. Section 2 A Model Man. 1. Summer visitors to Bunham on the East Coast generally bought a copy of Bunham and All About It from Mr. Parkinson in the High Street. The price of that excellent guidebook is only two pence, and it contains a frontispiece representing in rather a thin and jaded way the Hall of Stalactites. A line of letter pressed under the illustration informs the reader that this is one of the wonders of the world, and requests him to see page 28. The visitor who does see page 28 will find on that page a description of the all of stalactites. Therein is enthusiasm tempered with information. The other, chastely veiled by the pseudonym of Mermaid, but generally believed to be Miss Parkinson, contrasts the all of stalactites with the blue grotto of Capri and also with Westminster Abbey. And I regret to say that neither the Abbey nor the grotto comes out of the comparison at all well. Then follows a scientific paragraph. He that masters it will ever hereafter be able to distinguish between a stalactite and a stalagmite in the dark with one hand tied behind him, and to babble of calcium carbonate in terms of the closest intimacy. Finally, Miss Parkinson descends to common things and tell us that the well-appointed brakes of Messrs. Bodger and Sons run twice daily during the season, and recommends us to provide ourselves with a warm wrap to counteract the chill inseparable from these vast retreats of subterranean mystery. There can be no doubt about it. The all of stalactites is Bunham's trump card, and Bunham plays it with energy. Anything in Bunham which can possibly exhibit a view of the all of stalactites does exhibit it. It fills the picture postcards. It crawls round china mugs. It gets under paperweights. Jobson, the jewellers, sells at a derisory price small charms guaranteed to be made from fallen portions of genuine stalactite. One way or another that hall gets into the local paper every week, and if it is only a sonnet signed Mermid, it is better than nothing. No visitors can escape the Hall of Stalactites. The force of suggestion is too strong. It is doubtful if any visitor wishes to escape. There is not very much to do at Bunham. You can sit on the beach, or you can sit on the pier, or you can sit in one of the well-appointed breaks of Mrs. Bodger and Son, a young man who arrived on Monday to spend a bright holiday at sunny Bunham, went to the Hall of Stalactites the very first day. On Wednesday and Thursday, he went again. On Friday, he went twice. On Saturday, his body was taken out of the sea, and a waiter at the Bunham Railway Hotel said at the inquest that the deceased had seemed depressed. Breaks to the Hall of Stalactites always pulled up at the Bolin for purposes of reference. The Bolin is described by Miss Parkinson as a charming old-world hostelry. In front of the inn is the road. On the other side of the road is a patch of green, 
and on that patch every day during the season you might find Samuel Pell with his working model of a coal mine. Visitors descended from the break, went to see if the interior of the old world hostelry was still there, wiped their mouths, and crossed the road to interview Samuel Pell and his working model. If the visitors had any money left, Pell found means to annex it. Samuel was an old man of dignified appearance. He had abundance of white hair and a long white beard. His speech was refined, and the sentiments that he expressed were often truly admirable. He wore a soft black felt hat, but his remaining clothes were scarcely equal to it. The conjunction of a fisherman's blue jersey and a frock coat in the last stage of his putrefaction is not happy. His age and capacious lace boots has no lace in them and were retained in situ partly by the adoption of a shuffling gait and partly by personal magnetism. Above his exhibit was a card on which Samuel has written in capital, Not a toy, not a penny in the slot machine, a genuine scientific modelled my own work. The motive power of the model was supplied by Samuel himself. He turned a handle at the back. It was not hard work but he often said he was not fitted for hard work. When he turned, various things happened in the model, which gave a sectional view of a coal mine. Up above wheels went round. A basket was drawn up the shaft. At a lower level, a cardboard pony performed the incredible feat of dragging a cardboard truck without moving its legs. A group of cardboard miners became smitten with various forms of locomotive disorder, one of them delivers blow with his pick at a rate of two a second. The blows made no sound, and no coal fell. Sometimes a thoughtless humorist would point out to the exhibitor some of these lapses from realism. Samuel admitted them politely. You're right enough, sir, and I only wish I had the means to alter it. But the materials alone would cost me sixpence, and that is beyond my powers. By the time I've paid for the rent of my pitch here, there's barely enough left to buy me bread. Such patience and politeness often met with their reward. For an audience of woman, he had a touching story of how he had worked in the mines himself, and had been dismissed by the company's manager because, while saving another man's life at the risk of his own, he had inadvertently enfreaked the rule which forbids miner to speak during work hours. So there I was, ladies, with my arm and leg broken, thrown out of my employment, and with no hope for the future. But I had my wife and family to support, and I had to do something. And then it was that I first thought of this model. Yes, ladies, I designed that and I made it. Just as you see it now, while lying flat on my back in bed, in agony, and having only my left hand that I could use. And ever since, with the blessing of the Almighty, that model has been our means of livelihood. There are kind heart in the world yet, and, thank you miss, thank you mum, don't trouble, I'll pick it up, and God bless you. If a group of boys came up, he drew down the blind before the model. Ask what it was, he changed the subject. Pressed further, he admitted that behind that blind was a representation of the life on the ground. It's not for young boys to see. 
might keep you awake all night. I should get into trouble if I showed it to you. If a policeman were to see me exhibitioning these horrors to the young, I should be in prison before nightfall. It was not till the sun and four pence had been reached that he would draw the blind and turn the handle. The spectacle generally saddened the boys. If this was really devilry, then they felt that plain chocolate gave better value for the money. And sometimes they were quite rude to poor old Samuel Pell, but Samuel remained, as ever, patient and polite. The curate of St. Mark's said that the character of old Sammy Pell left much to be desired. This was, for the curate of St. Mark's, horribly strong language, but it was justified. The landlord of the charming Old World hostelry went into further details about Samuel. Yes, every morning about twelve, Samuel comes in front Bunham with his rotten old show on a barrow. There he sticks on that bit o' green opposite, and no more right to the pitch that the man in the moon has. No doubt, if I was to open my mouth, I could get him turned off of it, and I take jolly good care not to do it. As long as he's there, he ain't in my orchard, or my foul run. As long as I don't interfere with him, and don't forget to stem him a pint about once every three weeks, he won't interfere with me. He never touches anything of mine, but he ain't so particular with others. The other day, when he was putting up his show, I saw about a dozen hen's eggs in his burrow. How did you get em, Sammy? I said. Bought them, say Sammy. Likely. Might as well have said he'd laid em. Sneak em from somebody's hen house, of course. But that was no business of mine. He don't do so badly, don't old Sammy. Some days, I'll bet he takes more money than I do. But the severest critics of Samuel Pell was Herbert Chalk, the officer curator and guide of the Hall of Stalactites. The words Hall of Stalactites were emblazoned in gold on his cap. Otherwise, Mr. Chalk's was dressed as a decent gardener. When a visitor to the mammoth stalactite chanced as he talked to its curator, to mention that he had seen on his way there a fine old man with an ingenious model of a coal mine, fury blazed in the curator's eyes, and when he found that the kindly visitor had given Samuel half a crown, Mr. Chalk spake with his tongue. Then you'll excuse me, sir, but you've made a mistake. If there is a man in Bonham, that ought to be put in prison and kept there till further orders, it's old Sammy Pell. I know his story. Made that model himself, did he? He did nothing of the kind. He bought it for one and nine out of a railway sale of unclaimed property twelve years ago. What's more, if its work happened to go wrong, he can't even put them right himself, but has to go to Mr. Jobson which is the watchmaker in the high street, and get it done for him. And he calls himself an old coal miner, does Sammy. Why doesn't he take and call himself the Prince o' Wales at once? The nearest he's ever done to any mining has been sneaking lumps of coal out of the station yard. That he has really done, and done regular. And this winter I'm told they mean to set a trap for him. Hope he'll be caught too. 
the way he swindles visitors here is enough to turn him against Bunham altogether. Samuel knew that the curate disapproved of him, but did not mind. I suppose, he observed, that's what he's paid for. He knew that the landlord of the Bolin had no illusions about him, but he set against that the privileges that the landlord permitted him. But when, as inevitably happened, Samuel learned that the curator of the Hall of Stalactites had been saying things, he was aggrieved. Suppose I haven't got a wife and family, said Samuel to the landlord of the Bolin, and suppose I didn't make the old model myself, and suppose I was never in a mine, and suppose I do pick a lump of coal if I find it lying around, which is what any man of sense would do, what has all that got to do with Herbert Chalk? Live and let live is my motto. I'm not angry about it, but I'm going to stop it. There's going to be trouble between him and me, and he's going to get stalactites in the neck, is Mr. Herbert Chalk. 2. Hello, Chalk, said the last of the group of visitors, as he paid his sixpence and passed through the turnstile. You here still? And why not, sir? said Chalk, as he picked up his wand of office and exchanged the post of cash-talker for that of lecturer and guide. Oh, nothing, said the rather dressy young man. It was just something I heard, in at one here and out of another. Chalk scolded slightly. He put less enthusiasm than usual into his observation on the mammoth stalactite. He also said that the cave was first discovered in 1807 and was corrected severely. When the visitor left, Chalk fastened on the dressy young man. I'd like just two words with you, sir, he said. Certainly, the young man said uneasily. May I ask, sir, why you thought I'd got the sack, and who it was that told you? Oh, you don't want to think about that. No, sir, not in the ordinary way. But hints of this kind have been coming up on me lately, at the rate of two or three a day and I'm putting the matter into the hands of my solicitor. My conscience is clear enough, and I give my employers every satisfaction, and I'm not going to be slandered. Those that takes away a man's character should be made to pay for it. Of course, if you'd sooner not tell me in confidence, then we should have to subpoena you as a witness and get it that way. But this is your second season at Bonham, sir and I should be sorry to cause you any unpleasantness. Look here, said the young man. I don't want to give evidence. If I tell you in confidence, will you keep me out of it? I will, sir, said Chalk. You may depend upon it. Well, it was an old chap who shows a model of a coal mine outside the Bull Inn. His father owned the very mine of which that is the model, and the property would have come to him. Only he married beneath him, and so was disinherited. Oh, this is beyond words. Beg pardon, sir. And what did he say? He seemed well enough disposed towards you, said this was a thousand pities, and he did hope your employers would overlook it once more. He'd said he'd implore you to give it up with tears in his eyes. A far better friend to you than you imagine, I should say. What? He dared to tell you that I drank, said Chalk with his eyes popping out of his head. Never used the word. He said certain things and I put my interpretation on them. 
I may be wrong, but I think myself you'd better listen to his advice. And what do you mean by that, sir? Well, you get very excited. And who wouldn't with his character a stake? And you were all muddled up with that bit you had to speak just now. Thought you must have said it hundreds of times. You said thousands when you mean hundreds, and inches when you meant feet. Sign off it, Chalk, sign off it. I know I made mistakes, sir, said Chalk, but that was simply because I was upset in my feelings. Is a vagabond like that to take away the character of a man in the same employ for ten years and respected by all that know him? I can tell you all about Sammy Pell. He's the disgrace and sorrow of Bunham, he is. He ain't no son of no colliery proprietor, and there never was no propriety neither. He ain't been disherited, and that's all brag. He couldn't have married beneath him, because there's nothing lower than himself. He's not any class at all. He's a thief. He's a liar. He's a... One moment, said the dressy young man. For a chap who don't like slander, you seem to me to be going it. Now, I'm not going to mix myself up in your squabbles. They don't matter to me, and I'm here on a holiday. But if you can take a hint, you'll sign off. That's all. Good morning. Chalk was left with murder in his soul. He was given a few days in which to simmer down. But in the following week, almost the last week of the season, Samuel got to work again. As Herbert Chalk stood at the receipt of custom at the hall of stalactites, an old lady of several countenance put down half a crown to pay her entrance and waited for change. Half a crown mine, she said warningly. Not two shillings. Don't make any mistake. The thing had not yet down on Herbert Chalk. That's all right, mum, he said cheerfully. I don't often make any mistake. The old lady glared at him. Are you the man Chalk? she asked. That's my name, said Herbert, still genial. Then I have a message for you. She showed tact. She waited until she could get Chalk away from the crowd before she delivered the message. Mind you, she said, I don't want to express any opinion, one way or another. The vicar may be right, or he may be wrong. There is such a thing as misplaced generosity, and I can generally tell by the type of a man's face. Herbert Chalk was rude enough to interrupt. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. If you've got a message for me, let's have it. But the old lady was composed in whalebone and pure rubber, quite indestructible and specially built for endurance over the conversational course. Oh yes, you do know what I'm talking about, and I hope it may be a warning to you. It was an old man with a long white beard asked me to deliver the message. Was coming with it himself, but his feet were painful, and, being active still, I was glad to oblige. Tell him, he said, that if he can get his employers to give him another chance, the vicar will make up the missing money, believing that he yielded to sudden temptation and will be more honest in the future. And, as I said before, if Chuck had whipped out his notebook, his hair was that of a deadly and terrific composure. That's enough, he said. I'll take your name and address, if you please, madame. And if somebody don't get seven years penal for this, I'm a Dutchman. 
I go straight to my lawyers from here. He touched the point of his pencil with his tongue. Now, please, madame. What? said the old lady. My name and address. The idea of such a thing? Why, I'd as soon trust you with my money. I do a kindness, and then you talk to me like that. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. She left him, speechless, defeated, despairing. And while that fairly good man, the custodian of the Hall of Stalactites, suffered acutely from undeserved imputations, Samuel Pell, on the bit of green opposite the bullion, was enjoying himself immensely. He was exhibiting his scientific model to a group of romantically-minded ladies, pointing to one of the moth-eaten figure at present in a state of extreme but attactic activity, he declared, And that, ladies, is an exact representation of the miner whose life I saved. 3. But Samuel Pell had not yet finished with his enemy. Next week, Chalk's domestic peace was threatened. Mrs. Chalk, usually a smiling and cheerful woman, became morose. She asked her husband if he was particularly partial to the name of Bella. She wondered why, if he was so fond of yellow hair, he married a woman with brown. She said that when a married man of fifty went about with a girl, it was ridiculous as well as wicked. She added that a silly young hussy who came up to the hall of stalactites every day, and sometimes two or three times a day, would be likely to get a broomstick across her face to give her something else to think about. It took Herbert Chalk two days of hard and patient talking to convince his wife that the girl Bella, with the yellow hair and the unfortunate devotion to himself, was entirely mythical and no real existence and was invented by that man, Sammy Pell. He'd be the ruin of me, that chap will, said Chalk dejectedly. Ha, said Mrs. Chalk, I dare say if you'd let Sammy alone, he'd have let you alone. On the following Sunday, Herbert Chalk, taking his nasty-tempered terrier for a run on the cliffs, espied Samuel, taking his ease on one of the public seats, the dog also espied him, and at a distance of fifty yards made a rush for him, barking furiously. Chalk might have called his dog off, but did not. Samuel appeared to move slowly, but he was quick enough for his purpose. His boot, being unimpended by laces, came off very easily. When the dog was at a distance of ten yards, that boot flew through the air, smote the dog violently amidships and knocked him over. The dog gave it up, and returned to his master, complaining bitterly. I've got another boot if you care to apply for it, called Samuel. But Herbert Chalk pretended to be unconscious of the incident, and walked with dignity in the opposite direction. At the close of the season, Samuel Pell left Bunham for his holiday. Nobody knew where he spent his holiday, "'Out of friends, likely,' said the landlord of the Bull Inn. "'He's made enough money for this season. Wicked, I call it.' He returned to Bunham in December, and apparently still had money left to live upon. He never attempted to do any work. He spent a great part of the day in the public reading room. But if he stayed at home, 
one room over a small new agent's shop. He always had a bright and cheerful fire there. The station master said, when he met Samuel in the street, that he'd nab him as it yet. I don't know to what you refer, said Samuel politely. One day, as Samuel sat in the reading room, Herbert Chalk touched him on the shoulder. I should like a word with you, said Chalk in a hoarse whisper, for the rules of the reading room prescribed silence. Would you, said Samuel doubtfully. Over at the railway arms, Chalk added. With pleasure, Mr. Chalk, said Samuel, and followed him out. At the railway arms, the question being put to him, Samuel said a glass of scotch ale was what the weather seemed to indicate. The fact is, Sammy, said Chalk, that you and me didn't quite hit it together last season. I dare say I was in the wrong. Very likely, said Samuel. Well, here's Christmas upon us, and I'm ready to bury the hatchet. I should bury it in that dog of yours, if I were you. I got rid of him. He took to running and snapping at everybody, and I couldn't stick it. He might have got me into trouble. He pretty nearly did, said Samuel. But so far, as my old memory serves me, you were there already. Let's forget it, said Chalk. Christmas is coming. Peace and goodwill. Next season I hope to be paying you a bob a week regular, besides putting an extra custom in your way. Peace and goodwill, said Samuel respectively. Beautiful words. And that bob a week? How do you mean? Herbert Chalk explained, in the following season a new line of brakes was to run, bringing up visitors from Cowslade to the Hall of Stalactites. This being so, the custodian and his wife were going to enter upon the provision and sale of teas and mineral waters. And, said Chalk, if you told a visitor where they could get a good cup of tea, with nice fresh fruit, and everything clean and pleasant, then I'd tell the cowslade lot that they oughtn't to go back without stepping down to the Bullion Green to see the wonderful model and the man that saved forty lives, and I'd pay you a bob a week for advertising us. A child could do anything with me at Christmas time, said Samuel. I ought to haggle but I can bring myself to it. I'd sooner be too open-handed even if I lost money by it. Well, call it a bargain. They shook hands on it. And I think we ought to celebrate it, said Samuel. We'll have just one more. Let's see, did I pay the last? Oh, it's my turn, Sammy, said Chalk, and he was allowed to take it. End of section two.